the reason that people get rigid or the reason that people are rigid is because we believe that it provides us comfort. If we know the rules, if we know how things are supposed to go, if we know who belongs in what box, then it just makes us feel like, okay, I got this figured out. And the flexibility is the ability to tolerate not having things figured out, not knowing exactly what's going to happen next, or even not really understanding yourself completely. Welcome to Fluster Clucks with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about worry and other big feelings in parenting. I'm your co-host, Robin. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author, and I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a Fluster Clucks, and I'm here to help you find your way. In this special three-episode series, we're focusing on the three traits that are the core principles of Lynn's approach to helping families manage their anxiety. And last week, we covered autonomy. Autonomy. Today, we're going to talk about flexibility. Mm -hmm. And I want to mention that in season two, we launched with an episode on rigidity being one of the early signs of children who could be more prone to anxiety and anxious behavior. And I really recommend that you go back and listen to that episode after you listen to this one, if this is something that you feel like your family really needs to work on. Yeah, there are certain temperaments that are more rigid than others. And the reason we really want to pay attention to rigidity, and it's interesting, is that we're talking about autonomy and problem solving and flexibility, and rigidity really gets in the way of all of those things. So the more rigid you are, the less autonomous perhaps you allow your children to be, the more rigid you are, the less capable you are of being a creative problem solver. So rigidity really flows through a lot of problems that we see. It's really one of the risk factors for anxiety and depression. So we really want to pay attention to that because it's something that you can really concretely and very consciously be aware of and shift in your family if that's one of the traits of your family. Yeah, I just like to say as a parent myself, I've heard this list from you for a few years. I have always tried to think about it in my parenting. But the longer I sit with your list, the more that I realize how it permeates through many other things. And so I used to think autonomy was this very specific, concrete thing. And we unpacked that a lot more in last week's episode. And I think flexibility and rigidity are the same thing. It might seem simple at the first glance, but you can unpack this and just get deeper and deeper and deeper. Right. Well, when we think about flexibility, you think about it both externally and internally, right? External flexibility is when I really wanted to have pepperoni on my pizza. And then when they delivered the pizza, they forgot the pepperoni. And so now I have to manage that. It can be these little things that come up over and over again. Sort of we talk about somebody being able to go with the flow or to be able to handle when things don't go a certain way. And you've heard me say so many times that when we're dealing with families that tend to be anxious, one of the things they try and do 
is to create real predictability, to create structure, to make sure that everything goes as planned. And flexibility externally means that when things don't go as planned, you're able to figure that out. It doesn't become catastrophic. And the whole family isn't held hostage by the need for things to be so rigidly planned. And then we can also think about flexibility. And this is probably much more prevalent or much more of an issue as your kids get older and move into adolescence is the ability to be flexibly internally with yourself. Flexible about the way you perceive things, flexible about your opinions, giving yourself room to change and grow, giving yourself permission to move from one friend group to another, for example, or giving yourself permission to figure out what might be an activity that you would like to try versus something that you've done for a long time, but maybe you're a little bored with. That internal flexibility really shows up in adolescence and kids. We want to lay the groundwork, of course, as early as possible. But that idea that how do we be flexible in relationships? How do we be flexible in, in a way that allows us to experiment with things in a healthy way? That's a kind of flexibility that's really important also. I would add, because I'm in that stage of parenting now, it's the rigidity of the lunch table politics, the sexual identity labels, the labels of having a mental health disorder. Mm -hmm. There's a certain developmental stage where teenagers say, well, I'm this and I'm this and I'm this. And so what I'm hearing you say, and it makes perfect sense, is that there is a rigidity a bit of how to categorize the world right? And not leave it mm -hmm. open. You know, I mean, that's one of the things that happens is that when we see families that are more rigid, they might even have more rigid definitions about whether or not a child is doing well or not doing well, whether or not a child is depressed or not depressed. And being able to tolerate the flexibility of an emotional spectrum is really, really helpful. Say we have parents who are listening who are new parents. And there is that moment when you have a two or three-year-old that you serve them a meal and it's not the blue cup because you specifically talk about the blue cup in our other episode. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting litmus test right there. When your child, it's human nature at that age to want that predictability. But as a parent, how do you intervene and open up that so that we are going against our base instincts into moving into an evolved state of flexibility for our kids. How do we model that, right? I mean, isn't that kind of the journey? Yeah, that's the journey. And the thing that is that you bring up that's really important to remember is that developmentally, there are certain stages in which predictability and rigidity in routine is really helpful and really important. That's why toddlers love reading the same book over and over and over again, because they learn from repetition. They learn from having things be predictable. I say this all the time, and I'm just going to say it again. This is not an all or nothing proposition. I am not saying that things either should be rigid or chaotic. I say to families all the time, you get to decide whether you want to be rigidly flexible or flexibly rigid. And being able to, to see that there's room, right? It's not a tightrope. It's, it's a bridge. Let's use that example, right? So you've got a little kid and they, they, you sit down and they love the blue cup. The blue cup is their favorite cup, but maybe the blue cup is in the dishwasher or the dog chewed up the blue cup and you haven't gotten another blue cup yet. How do you say to your child, 
Well, I'll tell you how. I'll, I'll say it. I'll say it. So you say, yeah, I think say, you I'll know. Just, I'll just, I'll just freaking say it. Okay. I'm just going to say it. So you say to your child, I know you love that blue cup. Oh my gosh. Isn't it so great that when we sit down at the dinner table, there's your blue cup. And right now we don't have the blue cup and you really want the blue cup. <sighs> okay. So if we can't have the blue cup right now, what do you think we should do? Do you think we should use the red cup? And they're like, no, I want that blue cup. Now, this is where it comes in handy that you start saying, well, how can we pretend that the red cup is the blue cup? Maybe, maybe we could use a little magic right now that can help us get through this. Let's use our magic. And, and what, what should we do? Should we make a magic spell? Should we, should we, ooh, let's use a magic wand. You, you grab a chopstick from the silverware drawer and you say, ooh, here's the magic wand. And boom. So now everybody else is going to see that the cup is red, but we're going to pretend that the cup is blue. Right? So, so with little kids, you can use that magic. You can use that creativity. I'll, I'll give you an example, actually, that happened in my house. Annie's macaroni and cheese, which my kids loved, had, I don't know if they still have it, but they had it for a while where you could get it with parsley flecks in it, like as if that made it so fancy. Maybe they, like, maybe Annie's <laughs> like, oh, parents will think they're feeding their kids something green, right? Okay. So it had <laughs> parsley flecks in it. So my son, he was probably like two and a half or three, and he was like, I don't like the Annie's macaroni and cheese that has the parsley flecks in it. He probably didn't say it that articulately. And so we had this thing when I would accidentally buy the parsley flecked macaroni and cheese. It was the one that was always on sale. <laughs> right, probably, right, right. Oh, it's the only one that's left. Huh, how about that? Because nobody else's kids will eat it either. So I would say to him, all right, so we got to use some mommy magic here. I am going to get rid of the parsley flecks. You're not even going to taste them because, you know, you can't taste them anyway. And even though your eyes are going to see it, your tongue, we've gotten rid of it. And they would look at me like, okay, you know, like you can do that. Sure. Yeah. So we would eat the parsley flecked Annie's macaroni and cheese using the magic that made them not taste the parsley, which they couldn't taste anyway. And then maybe later I would say, you know, isn't that funny that it didn't really matter that we could handle whether or not it had parsley in it or not. So the next time that we accidentally buy the parsley flecked macaroni and cheese, it doesn't have to be such a big deal, does it? So being able with, with little kids, using that playfulness, using that idea of magic, which is very developmentally appropriate, to just insert this idea of flexibility. Robin and I travel a lot. And part of traveling is that you learn that you have to compromise, right? So maybe you're not going to get the best seat on the plane. Well, you know where you shouldn't compromise? You shouldn't compromise with your health care. When it comes to your health, there's no compromising, everybody. Don't go back to that one doctor who didn't really pay attention to you, who rushed you through your appointments. Check out ZocDoc. This is the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, insurance. So literally no compromises here. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Once you find the doc you want, you can book them immediately. You don't have to wait. You don't have to be on hold with a receptionist. These doctors all have verified reviews from real patients. 
So the typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is just between 24 and 72 hours. That's it. You can even score same-day appointments. I have two young adult sons. They are always needing something, right? We've had broken elbows. We've had tonsils. We've had this. We've had that. If I were a young person, if I were a parent trying to help my young person find a doctor, this is what I would use. So Go to ZocDoc.com slash Fluster and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash Fluster. ZocDoc.com slash Fluster. I really have to pay attention to hydrating properly. I work out a lot. I talk all the time, as you know. I am pretty active and I don't drink enough water. So I'm constantly thinking about how it is that I am going to hydrate in the best way possible. And I'll tell you, if my water has a little bit of flavor, it's so much easier for me. And if I can get those electrolytes, if I can get more bang for my buck, it's just so much better. I have been using liquid IV. I put it into a huge glass. I put it into the refrigerator. It's cold. It's very tasty. I've been putting it in my water bottle when I go to the gym. The packaging is so convenient. I actually look forward to drinking it, which is not something that comes naturally to me. I love the lemon-lime flavor. They've got a sugar-free option that is really great. So I think that if you're somebody like me that has a difficult time getting in the amount of hydration that you need for your body, Liquid IV is a great option. One stick, 16 ounces of water, it hydrates better than water alone. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, and it doesn't have all that sugar. It doesn't have artificial sweeteners. Eight vitamins and nutrients just for your everyday wellness. It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. However you hydrate, grab your liquid IV, hydration multiplier, sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code FLUSTER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code FLUSTER at liquidiv.com. And the other thing you really want to do with little kids is you really want to note, and big kids too, by the way, but with little kids, you really want to notice and you really want to make, you know, you don't have to throw a parade, but you really just want to note for them out loud that you really appreciate how flexible they were. That you say, we were really pressed for time and we had to get to this thing, or we were really trying to get out of the house for school. And I know you wanted to wear those red socks. They were in the dryer. And boy, I saw you using that flexible brain of yours. And that was so helpful. Thank you so much. Just throw that in there on a regular basis so that kids begin to hear from you that flexibility is a value that you appreciate And the flip side of that is make sure that you as a parent aren't making rigidity the value that you appreciate. That can be very common in families. Like this is the way that things are supposed to be. We talked about this in the previous episode with autonomy, you know, in terms of clothes and perfectionism and that kind of stuff. Make sure that you are not modeling. This is the way things are, my way or the highway. You have to do it this way. We need to make sure that we leave at this exact time every time. Then you're modeling rigidity. 
Right. And then the other thing we've mentioned in another episode too, is that when you have very specific rules as a family around bedtime, for example, Mm -hmm. occasionally break those rules and say, we have rules around bedtime, but you know what? Sometimes we're going to do things that are different. Tonight's Mm -hmm. one of those nights because we're going to see a movie or we just feel like staying up a little bit later and playing this game. And Mm -hmm. it's okay to constantly change according to the situation. Right. If you can convey to your kids that within the structure that is really helpful to, that keeps our lives on track, if flexibility is a value that you appreciate, because then what happens when they get older and they're trying to figure out who they are and they're trying to navigate tricky social waters and they're trying to figure out how they're going to make decisions and this and that, if you have laid down that groundwork, that flexibility is a value that you find helpful, they're going to benefit from that in ways that you can't even predict when they're five or seven or nine. Having a 13-year-old that is able to flexibly deal with social drama, having a 16-year-old that can flexibly deal with making decisions about what courses that they're going to take, having a 16-year-old that's able to be flexible about when they're going to fit drivers in into their schedule and when they're going to get their license, all of those things just make their lives and your lives easier. It really is a part of good mood management too, right? The ability to be flexible, the ability to recognize change is okay, that it's valuable. Rigidity makes life harder. It just makes life harder. Give us an example of a a tween social drama that has flexibility leading it or that has rigidity leading it. So I'm thinking of some sort of middle school situation where a flexible kid versus a rigid kid is approaching the same situation. So let's think about group projects, because group projects are very prevalent in the tween years, right? You're doing a group science project or something like that. And if you've got a kid who's very rigid, the project is supposed to be done a certain way. It needs to be completed a certain way. They want to get the 100%. And they're assigned in the group with a child who, for whatever reason, doesn't have the skills, doesn't have the organization, doesn't have the interest. That becomes, oftentimes, if you, br- if you go into that with rigidity, and if parents go into that with rigidity, then it becomes an issue of How do I make sure that my child does this perfectly or that my child does this well, that they don't have any struggles with it, and the other child becomes the scapegoat? So you begin saying, my child is very good at handling this stuff, and that other child isn't doing what they want. And then the conversation, which I've had many times in my office, the conversation is, why did my child get assigned that child? Right. I mean, it becomes really you're modeling that unless you live up to my standards, you're not good enough for me to, to do this project with. If, on the other hand, you start saying to your child, you know, this looks like it's a tricky fit. This looks like this is going to be difficult. Let's figure out what you have to do in order to get through this project. Because the teacher probably knows that they, that they assign somebody who's disorganized with somebody who's super organized. And this child, is going to struggle through this in a way that you're probably not. Let's think about how we can be flexible. Flexibility allows for empathy. Instead of seeing something through only your eyes, 
instead of seeing something through the rigid eyes of judgment, you're allowing your child to step back and recognize that maybe the child that's doing the project doesn't have a mom that can drive them to Michael's to get all the crafts, the the supplies necessary for the project. Maybe this child struggles in a way that you're not used to struggling. When you talk about it in a flexible way, instead of focusing on the rigid grade, the rigid outcome, it allows for empathy, it allows for connection, it allows them to see the situation in a different way. All of that is so helpful. So helpful. Yeah, that would be an example of rigid versus flexibility. That's sort of a a social slash academic drama, but it's one that comes up all the time when I'm talking to rigid kids. Yeah, it seems like if you're on a sports team, Mm -hmm. if you have um, a really strong player, but that strong player still can't advance as far because there are some teammates who aren't at that level, Mm -hmm. that stronger player has to learn that my efforts get combined with others and Mm -hmm. that flexibility of not pursuing that perfection. We just don't have control over a lot of this. I mean, that's what I'm also hearing is that you're just explaining to kids, we don't have control over how we're evaluated often. There will be other factors and it's good to learn to shrug it off with a smile. To normalize it too. Like you say, we don't have a lot of control. It's sort of the whole college admissions process and choosing a college. There's some things you can do and some things you can't do, but ultimately we don't have a lot of control over whether or not they pick you to go to that college. There are all sorts of factors in play. Once you get to college, there are an enormous amount of things that are out of your control, right? Who's your roommate? And what I see with families that are rigid is that oftentimes there is a real effort to control that process, to be rigid about the process when it's really an opportunity to talk about flexibility. So one of the experiences I think that's interesting now if we talk about rigidity and flexibility Asking for a single room in college has become a pretty common thing that you can't handle living with somebody else. Going off to college and being assigned a roommate is one of the most amazing (laughs) experiences of flexibility that you can have, particularly if you didn't share a room with a sibling growing up, which is less and less common, right? Now, kids generally, not only do they have their own bedrooms, sometimes kids have their own bathrooms, right? So this idea of moving into a dorm, having a roommate, having to share space with somebody in a way, if you don't prime your child for that, if your child doesn't have any experience with having to compromise or do things another way, it becomes a little tricky when you move in. Kind of a funny story. I was just talking to a young girl who's just started her freshman year in college. She came in to see me. She's going to a local college so she's near home and she can, her parents can keep an eye on her and there are reasons for that. But she said that there's a sign on the bathroom door. She's a little bit naive. No having sex in the bathroom. She did not even know that that was a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> this whole experience for her has been one of flexibility. It's been really, really challenging for her, but also really wonderful. She feels very proud of herself. I think one of the more challenging roommate situations I heard was actually your son's freshman year. Yeah, he arrived on campus. He didn't know who his roommate was going to be. His roommate was 20 years old, so 
he was entering his junior year, but he was on the spectrum. And he had gone to a program close to home for two years for his freshman, sophomore year, and was now moving away from home for the first time and roommates with my son, who was a freshman. And it was challenging because this boy was on the spectrum, which means that there were a lot of things he did that were incredibly rigid. I think one of the most challenging was that his alarm, I think either on his phone or on his watch, was set to go off at 1 a.m. And my son kept asking him if he could change it. And this young man was adamant that he was not to change his alarm, that the alarm had to stay the way it was. So every day, an alarm went off at 1 a.m. Now, sometimes my son was asleep and sometimes he wasn't because it was his freshman year in college. So in the face of this rigidity, which he understood, and he was very, he was frustrated, but he was, he's a nice kid and he was very empathic. He knew that this boy was on the spectrum, but it was really challenging. And it all started with that parsley on the mac and cheese. That's right. Like, I can handle this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was like, use your mommy magic to pretend <laughs> that it's just crickets. It's not really an alarm going off. Well, and ultimately what he did after, after his first semester, a bed opened up in one of his friend's rooms and he moved. My son moved. He talked to his roommate about it. His roommate didn't really seem to care. He was sort of like, sure. So he was flexible. And my younger son's college has been a, a lesson in flexibility because he transferred after freshman year too. So he was constantly looking at how can I handle what I have to handle and how can I be open to changing what I can change? When you talk about the rigidity of label, and I think of all of these examples that I've heard and the teens I'm around where there's a rigidity about, well, I have depression or mm -hmm. I have anxiety. They want their mental health diagnosis to be their identity, mm -hmm. which drives you crazy. Mm -hmm. It does, admittedly. They also, tweens and teens to a degree, the popular kids, right? Labeling who's in or who's out and what group. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like that need to categorize people from theater kids, goth kids, all of these different labels, is that because it becomes developmentally something that most kids go through? Yeah. It's like an age-appropriate thing as they're figuring out who they are. It's that quest to sort of figure out where you belong, that search for belonging. I think human beings are really tribal. It's the desire to identify with a group because it gives you that sense of belonging, because you want to be on the in and you don't want to be on the outs. But I'll tell you, it's interesting as you bring this up, I'd love to tell you about this study that was done a few years ago that really addresses this. Looking at stress in teenagers through high school, picture the thing that you've always wanted to learn, and now picture that you're learning it from the person who's literally the best in the world at it. It's fantastic, and that's what you get with Masterclass. I recently listened to Matthew Walker's talk on sleep and the importance of consistency with sleep. I loved Bobby Brown's Masterclass, gave me all these tips about putting on makeup because, you know, I'm in front of a camera sometimes and I want to look good, and Bobby was such a big help. So this year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. Masterclass actually helps you do it. Like I actually put on makeup the way that Bobby Brown taught me how to put on makeup. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. 
don't just talk about improving. Masterclass actually helps you do it. Masterclass offers over 180 instructors. So whether you want to master negotiation with Chris Voss, Think Like a Boss with Martha Stewart, or maybe you want to learn how to just make your makeup look better with Bobby Brown or sleep better with Matthew Walker, with Masterclass, you get unlimited access to intimate one-on-one classes with the world's best. I loved it. There are over 200 classes to pick from. New classes are added every single month, like a class that talks about your gut health. So many interesting things to learn. So every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's absolutely no risk. Right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash Fluster. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash fluster. Masterclass.com slash fluster. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're, Amy, more of a, we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, Mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. So there was a guy named David Yeager, and he and his colleagues The question that they were trying to address was how do we make high school less stressful for teenagers, which is a big question to ask. So this is what they did. Incoming freshmen, they talked to them about the fact that they weren't done yet. And in particular, they referenced what they referred to in the study as their socially relevant traits. And they did some reading exercises. They did some writing exercises during those first few days of freshman year. And the message that they offered, which was a very simple message, was that people can change. And it was intended to instill a basic, almost banal message to help them manage tension. People can change. And what they found, because then they followed these freshmen through their sophomore, junior, senior years is that these freshmen reported, as they moved through high school, less stress, less tension, because somebody had said to them, you can change. You are not done yet. You know, this is what Carol Dweck talks about with the fixed mindset and making sure that we give the message to kids that they are works in progress, that their brains are malleable, that they are not this one thing. If you think about the breakfast club, right? I mean, that's what the whole breakfast club, that whole movie was about how do we break down these tribal identifications? How do we get to know people more than just their labels that they all had? That's what that movie was about, of course. So giving that message to kids, if you've got an 11-year-old or a 12-year-old or a 14-year-old 
being able to give them permission to change and grow, to try on different things, to figure out which groups that they can be in and move between groups, right? It's a quest for this sense of belonging. And then it becomes kind of rigid. And they want to identify themselves in a way that they feel like will allow them to be a part of a group. You know what this reminds me of? It's one of the most powerful hours you can spend watching something. Did you watch the Michael Apted documentary series that chronicles a group of children in London over the course of their lives? And it started with age seven and they're now in their 60s. It's called Seven and Up, 14 and Up. I can't believe you haven't seen this. We could do a whole episode entitled, I can't believe you haven't seen that. I know you you would. I could. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing because the premise was, show me the seven-year-old and I'll show you the adult. Mm -hmm. So then it shows people at 14 and 21 and 28. Mm -hmm. And as you watch it, you can't help but see an incredibly powerful shift, obviously, from that seven-year-old soul to the 14-year-olds because of the Mm 14-year-old becomes much more introverted, shy, questioning. They're at a very rocky period in personal development. Mm -hmm. And the 21, you start to see them go out of it. But you're, you're looking at people who cross different socioeconomic backgrounds, different races, different neighborhoods from London. That was the idea. And one of the things that's so great if you had a teenager and you watched some of these series together is you can talk about those people and say, look at how differently they Mm -hmm. changed when they were teenagers. But it is funny how the 45-year-old and the seven-year-old really sort of displayed the same level of optimism and a sense of humor. And that's how they chose to display themselves to the world. We're not permanent. You always talk about permanence. I was actually just listening to a podcast this morning with Katherine Sanderson, who does a lot of research on happiness. She was a guest on the podcast. She brought up a really interesting point. She said, we tend to say about kids and we tend to say about ourselves, oh, well, I'm just more naturally optimistic or I'm just more naturally flexible. And we know that temperament has a role in it. Our environment has a huge role in it. But what she was saying, which I thought was such a good reminder, is that if you don't see yourself as naturally happy, that means that you have to work at it harder. And it really is possible to have a more optimistic or a more a happier outlook. It's sort of like if you're not as naturally gifted at the piano, then maybe you have to practice more. Or if you're not as naturally gifted at fill in the blank, you have to figure out how to improve your skills. I loved her message because it was really just the message I give all the time, that it's about recognizing where the gap is and developing the skills. I think where the the rigid sort of labeling permanence comes in is when we accept about a child or we say to a child because it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and a family-fulfilling prophecy, this is the grumpy one. This is my anxious one. This is my happy one. They will live up to those expectations. One of the homework assignments that I give to older kids all the time, and I have, I want classroom teachers to do this too when I'm talking to schools, is I want you to have a discussion about 
the ways in which you've changed compared to two years ago? Or, you know, with the pandemic now, we can say, what's different about you now compared to when COVID started? What are the opinions that have evolved for you or your tastes or your relationships over the last five years? Because that is just a way to get kids to look at this idea of evolving and changing. Because I think it is so easy to just label kids. And, you know, as you said, it drives me crazy that we would say about an eight-year-old, you know, well, they, now they have depression or they, this is who they are without really recognizing how malleable and flexible our brains are, our personalities can be. You know, we're not going to, I'm never going to be an introvert. That's not going to happen. But I was just thinking last night as I was in bed on a Saturday night at 8.30, totally psyched that I was going to be watching the morning show. I was thinking to myself, I cannot even imagine going out and socializing with anybody on a Saturday night. And I'm a pretty extroverted person. That has changed in me. I don't want to go out. I don't want to socialize except with a very small group of people. So being aware of this larger idea of flexibility, paying attention to those early rigid signs and recognizing developmentally that little kids want things to go a certain way. We're not going to throw out the baby with the bathwater. But as your kids hit those developmental stages of middle school and high school, letting them know that flexibility is a value that you appreciate and that is enormously helpful and enormously important to them as they move through life. That's the message that I want to give. Let's take it one more step into the concrete because Mm -hmm. all of a sudden you have a tween or a teen who's talking about what they're observing at school or their friends, and you're hearing a lot of labels in their conversation. Mm -hmm. What's that pep talk you can say, I hear you're using a lot of labels to describe people. But let's talk Mm -hmm. about labels and how they do or don't serve you. That's a great way to introduce that topic, to say, I hear that you're putting a lot of labels and, you know, then you make them watch The Breakfast Club, of course. But you want to say, is there anybody that you know that you put a label on that then you found out that there was more to that person than that label? Let's think about that. And then maybe you have an example of that. You know, for me, it was Lisa Simmons in seventh grade, which was a terrible year for me. Lisa Simmons was so pretty. Her hair feathered back perfectly. She knew how to wear eyeliner in a way that to me was just mysterious. She was one of the prettiest, most popular girls in seventh grade. And I was intimidated by her just from afar. I had a label on her. She was somebody who was going to she she was going to hurt me, right? Because those girls had not been nice to me in the past. She was so kind to me. She was so sweet to me. You know, I'm sitting here thinking about Lisa Simmons in seventh grade. She was the most popular, prettiest girl in the class and was probably the girl who was the nicest to me. And I think that that's a really helpful story to share, those kind of stories. What about the kid who was the big, huge jock that you thought was a real whatever, and then you found out that after school, he would go to a nursing home and visit his great-grandmother? What are the ways that we can poke holes in those labels so that we allow our kids to see that we're not just unidimensional? We don't have this rigid label. You want your kids to turn that exercise onto themselves. Mm -hmm. What labels 
do you choose to apply to yourself and what labels mm -hmm. do you think others do and why? And are those really serving you? And are those accurate? Wouldn't it be a great question to say, what do you think if somebody labeled you, what would be a label that somebody could give you that would be really wrong to you? What might somebody think about you that you're sitting here thinking, that's not me. I can't believe they think that about me. Yeah, to turn it on them. Would somebody say that you're this and that doesn't fit for you? Or somebody said that you're this and that doesn't feel like who you are at all. That's a really good way to have them begin to think about that as it pertains to themselves. And with that education, then the goal is for them to be conscious of that instinct to label and use that less and less of a crutch mm -hmm. for themselves and for others. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So the, the goal here was to have you all think about flexibility in a really broader way, knowing that when your kids are little, so if you are listening to this and you've got little kids, that you're going to teach flexibility in a pretty concrete way because it's going to be about the blue cup. It's going to be about being able to manage when they're not tall enough to ride the roller coaster because they are an inch too short. It's going to be those concrete things. And then think about it developmentally, about how you're just going to take that pretty concrete idea of flexibility and let it just expand into broader categories right? Flexibility about who you are, flexibility about how you label other people, flexibility about your emotions, flexibility about the decisions you make, the people that you associate with, the problems that you're going to have to deal with. This idea of being a flexible human being is one that should start when they're tiny and that you're just going to keep on working on, particularly as they're moving into the teen and tween years because socially flexible people do better. Being socially flexible allows you to connect, allows you to have that sense of belonging with a lot of different groups. So it's not so risky that if you're not in this group, then you're on the outs. Thinking about this broad idea of flexibility, and here's the question for all of you, how am I going to make sure that I am both modeling and directly talking to my kids about the value of flexibility. It's not all or nothing. I'm not trading in rigidity for chaos, but how am I going to promote that as a very worthwhile value in my parenting, in my family, in my own life too? That's what I want people to think about. So join the Facebook group so that you can ask Lynn your question on an upcoming episode. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Fluster Clucks. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, 
tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.